All right, everybody. It is Wednesday, November 30th. You're listening to the Mo News Podcast. I'm Mo Shwanunu. And I'm Jill Wagner. This is the place where we bring you just the facts and a little bit of analysis. And we read the news so you don't have to. Uh, Jill, did I hear you cheering miles away <laughs> uh, yesterday as the World Cup match was happening? We were certainly cheering loud, uh, but I do miss the camaraderie of watching. Every once in a while, there's a game like a World Cup match that the U.S. is in that gets a lot of attention. Mm-hmm. And it, that's when it's so fun to be in the city. Oh, totally. And also you have such an international crowd in New York. So every game matters to a certain group, a certain audience in New York City. So there was an earlier game of Ecuador versus Senegal, and you could see people walking the streets with Ecuadorian flags and Senegalese flags. So no matter where you turned in New York, there was a fan group for every single team yesterday. All right, uh, let's get to the headlines. And we are going to start with the big win at the World Cup for the U.S. men's soccer team. We'll talk about who they play next. The Senate passes landmark legislation to protect same-sex marriage. The top two Republican leaders in Washington are speaking out for the first time about that Trump dinner with Kanye and a white nationalist. The latest on the Balenciaga controversy blowing up social media and Merriam-Webster's word of the year, plus the runner-ups. Yeah. Moshe, Moshe, if you're not first, you're last. Totally. It it was nice of Merriam-Webster. They've listed the top 10, so uh, the other words don't feel left out. We'll, We'll try to get to the full list at the end of this podcast. Okay, let's start with the World Cup. In one of the most anticipated games yet, the U.S. beat Iran 1-0, advancing to the round of 16 or the knockout stage of the tournament. The U.S. scored their first and only goal about a third of the way through the first half. Iran almost tied the game with about a minute left, but the American defense prevailed. So now the U.S. faces the Netherlands in the round of 16 match. That is Saturday at 10 a.m. Eastern time. From this point on, it is win or go home. There are no more ties allowed. And it is the first time the U.S. and the Iranian teams have played each other in over 20 years. In 1998, Iran beat the U.S. 2-1, to one, and that was their first ever win in the World Cup. Christian Pulisic, who scored that winning goal, was actually taken to the hospital for an abdominal injury, according to the U.S. Soccer Federation. Uh, Moshe, I don't need to ask you then if you watch. Oh, yeah, you could have heard me. Uh, We live on the ninth floor here in Brooklyn, and uh, you you probably could have heard me at ground level. Um, It was really exciting. It was really exciting to have a men's team to cheer for, especially since four years ago, Jill, the men's team didn't even make qualify for the World Cup didn't make the top 32. This is a big deal that they're back, back with a vengeance. Uh, Of course, we don't have this problem with the women's team. They have won the World Cup. They're actual champions in 2015 and 2019, and they're going to go try to do a three-peat. They've actually won four overall in the past year. So the women do an incredible job. The men, not so much. So this is a big deal for men's soccer. And so now, Jill, we return to this round of 16. We did make it here in 2014 and 2010. We lost both times. Uh, So we'll see if we're going to be able to surpass that and reach uh, basically the furthest we have ever gone is the top eight back in 02. So can this team get there? One of the big questions will be, is Christian Pulisic okay? Uh, They're going to make that call probably tomorrow. He was taken to the hospital for scans, had that abdominal injury after he crashed really hard into the Iranian goalkeeper as he finished that goal. He is one of the brightest stars and will be key in that matchup against the Netherlands on Saturday. And by the way, the Dutch are serious about their soccer. They actually didn't make 
2018 either in the World Cup. But prior to that, they were the runners up and they finished in third place in the previous game. So uh, they take it very seriously. They've been very successful through the years. Jill, this all happened against the backdrop of politics here. Uh, U.S. and Iran, you don't typically hear about them playing in sports, but you do hear about all the geopolitics. And so what was very interesting here is that for the regime, a victory over the U.S. would have been a huge value to them, a point of national pride, a defeat of the great Satan, they call the U.S. For some of the protesters, Iran continuing to be in the World Cup would have meant that they continue to get attention on the Iranian cause, on the protests that are still happening there in the third month. At the same time, Joe, was very interesting, and videos started to appear very quickly on social media after the game uh, and this is what it sounded like in certain parts of Iran after their loss yesterday. Ooh. So, Jill, you heard that right. Those were celebrations in parts of Iran yesterday after the U.S. beat their team. The feeling is, I was speaking to some Iranian dissidents, that they feel that this would have been a propaganda value for the regime. So while they are huge soccer fans, have national pride, they feel that uh, the loss, they, they were some of them were really rooting for the U.S. here because they didn't want the regime to be able to, you know, uh, have this propaganda win. And Mosh, that sound that we just played, that was actually from Masa Amini's hometown. She is the 22-year-old woman who was killed while in custody because she wasn't wearing the headscarf or, or wasn't wearing it properly. Um, and it's just fascinating what's going on right now in terms of just the politics in that country. Right. You know, we, we were saying, like, is a win a win? Is a win a loss? Some protesters like Iran being in the games because it keeps bringing attention to the cause. At the same time, some protesters don't want the propaganda win, especially since the soccer team was basically threatened uh, to not show any support for the protesters. So if you recall in these games, in the first game, they didn't sing the national anthem. They have since been singing the national anthem. So uh, it is fascinating uh, to see how this all played out, especially also against the backdrop in Qatar, where the regime there is very close to the Iranian uh, Islamic regime. So they've effectively been trying to ban some signs uh, that have been uh, supportive of the protests. Okay, on to politics here in the U.S. The Senate passed landmark legislation last night to codify federal recognition for same-sex marriage. The bill passed in a 61 to 36 vote with 12 Republicans joining Democrats to vote for it. Three senators did not vote, and it puts the bill on track to become law in the final weeks before Republicans assume the majority in the House of Representatives at the start of the new Congress in January. It's expected to pass the House next week, and then it goes to President Biden for his signature. Democrats wanted to show their commitment to protecting same-sex marriage rights given the increasingly conservative Supreme Court, even with that 2015 decision, the Obergefell decision that guaranteed same-sex couples that fundamental right to marry uh, still standing. So this bill repeals the 1996 Defense of Marriage Act, which is still on the books and denies federal benefits to same-sex couples. It prohibits states from denying the validity of an out-of-state marriage based on sex, race, or ethnicity, but in a condition that Republican backers insisted upon, it would guarantee that religious organizations would not be required to provide any goods or services for the celebration of any marriage, basically that they're allowed to refuse to recognize same-sex unions. So, Mosh, how under threat was same-sex marriage? Well, it really depends on who you ask, and Democrats didn't want to take that risk, right? They've been warning since June. You know, they feel that people took Roe v. Wade for granted. 
And obviously that went down in June. And what was really interesting is that uh, there were various opinions. There was the majority opinion. There was dissenting opinion. And then Justice Clarence Thomas, you know, one of the most conservative justices on the court, wrote a concurring opinion, basically his opinion. And Clarence tends to do this. But in that opinion, out of Roe, he was like, we should start to reconsider a whole bunch of cases. Griswold v. Connecticut, that's contraception. Lawrence v. Texas, that's same-sex relationships. And Obergefell, that's marriage equality. Uh, because as you noted, the Defense of Marriage Act, which was the law actually, in, interestingly, to really show you a sign of the times, Jill, Defense of Marriage Act was signed by Bill Clinton in 1996. Uh, and that act uh, prohibited benefits for same-sex couples. That's where the country was at back then. That's where some Democrats were back then. Uh, and so when Obergefell, the decision is made at the Supreme Court in 2015, now same-sex same -sex marriage is recognized across the country, but those old laws are on the books. And if you actually look at all the state laws right now, if for some reason the Supreme Court, you know, Clarence was able to convince four others to join him in the Supreme Court, uh, 35 states still have constitutional amendments or statutes banning same-sex marriage. So that was the big concern here. Um, as, uh, you know, Democratic proponents, activists were like, you can't let happen to same-sex marriage what happened to abortion. Moshe, I know that you interviewed Jan Crawford, who's the CBS News chief legal correspondent. And I remember she pretty much thought that this was overblown, that, right. that, that this would stand, um, that it was really just Roe v. Wade that they were going to overturn. But Look, like you said, it, it, the the thinking is that especially Democrats took Roe v. Wade for granted, and I guess if that could go down, anything can. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. What Jan mentioned is that like Clarence Thomas lives on an island unto himself, has his own interpretations, uh, loves to write his own opinions, uh, even when the rest of the court doesn't agree with him. And interestingly, in that majority opinion uh, and in a concurring opinion, I believe. Brett Kavanaugh, one of the conservatives who overturned Roe v. Wade, was like, listen, we're not touching anything else. This is just about abortion, guys. Don't worry about anything else. And people were like, you know what? I am worried about that. And so you saw it, the House uh, pass this really quickly. The Senate sort of let it linger. And then you saw this resurgence recently. And a little behind the scenes, Senator Tammy Baldwin, a Democrat from Wisconsin, who is the first openly gay person elected to the Senate, led a bipartisan group that had been trying to find 10 Republican votes necessary for that bill to pass in September, and who ultimately negotiated a delay on the vote until after the midterm elections. That group ultimately got 12 Republicans on board and also added that amendment to the bill to allay some Republicans' concerns about religious liberty. Right. So as you mentioned, that basically it ensures that religious organizations don't have to recognize it, but states have to recognize it. But it, but it is fascinating. They were able to get over that filibuster hump. And interestingly, uh, Jill, a key group that came out uh, was the uh, Church of the Latter-day Saints, formerly known as the Mormons, uh, which uh, helped push Mitt Romney uh, to support this bill. Uh, they came out in support of this. So it is really a remarkable thing. And um, I'll link to this in the uh, show notes. Did an interview with Sasha Eisenberg earlier this year, who wrote like a 900 page book on the history of gay marriage to just see the evolution in this country on gay marriage from the 1990s through today in just 30 years, how quickly opinions have changed um, is, is a pretty remarkable thing. All right, Jill, we have a lot more news to get to in this podcast. But first, I want to thank our sponsor this week, the betting and sheep brand Bull & Branch. That is Bull, B-O-L-L. -L. They are extending their special deal for Mo News listeners through this weekend. Uh, they took notice last month on our Instagram uh, news discussion 
about whether to use a top sheet, whether you don't use a top sheet, uh, whether it's still hip, all the various things we were sharing in that in that Instagram debate heard around the world. And so Bolin Branch is offering all Mo News listeners 25% off plus free shipping for a limited time with the promo code MONEWS. If you're looking for a gift for yourself or a loved one this holiday season, remember that all of us spend about a third of our lives in bed. Some of us more hours than others, depending on what point in life you are at. But no matter what, sheets are a very big deal. My wife and I, Alex, got a set of white sheets uh, from Bolin Branch. Uh, They've been incredible. They get softer with every wash. I think we're looking at getting another set right now. So as you do your holiday shopping, this is the opportunity to give the gift of a better night's sleep to everyone on your holiday list. The deal, again, from Bolin Branch is 25% off site-wide, plus free shipping when you use the promo code MONEWS at bullandbranch.com. I have a link in the show notes. That is bullandbranch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, branch.com, promo code MONEWS, M-O-N-E-W-S. The offer ends on Sunday, December 4th. Time now for the speed read from People Magazine, the latest on the Balenciaga controversy. Over the past week, the luxury fashion brand Balenciaga has found itself embroiled in a bizarre series of controversies related to two ad campaigns. One ad included a child model standing with a teddy bear that was wearing black leather and chains that many compared to BDSM apparel. The other, even stranger, included a pile of legal documents one of which included the text of a Supreme Court decision related to child pornography. Released within the last month, the campaigns caused an uproar that led to the brand to pull both, sue the creative agency it hired to develop them, lose out on an award, and issue multiple statements. The two ad campaigns in question were Balenciaga's Christmas 2022 campaign and Spring 2023 campaign. The teddy bears are actually plush handbags that Balenciaga sells in the shape of teddy bears. The backlash has been fast and furious. The fashion brand putting out multiple statements. And then Friday, Balenciaga brought a $25 million lawsuit against the production company that it had hired, North Six, for one of the ads. Yeah. What? <laughs> I mean, there was so, I don't even understand. I had to read this story when I tell you a hundred times. Yeah. And, and when we talked about even doing this story today, I had to re- I really had to read in because there it's so bizarre and so confusing. Yeah, I mean, as I learned more and more here that there's the second ad campaign, and then by the way, like why was there the printout of a Supreme Court decision related <laughs> to child porn in their ad? You know what's wild here, Jill? So like you know, this started with that whole controversy last week with the the child holding the teddy bear in s and m apparel. I didn't even realize that those were plush handbags that they sell in the shape of teddy bears anyway. So right now you have a situation where, you know, all the notes I've been getting from people who work in the fashion world are like fashion brands scrutinize every detail, every detail to make sure that that thing is on brand. And then you saw Balenciaga being like, yo, our bad, like, we'll look into how this happened. And people are like, what do you mean look into it? Like, this was your ad campaign. You clearly knew it was up. And by the way, why is there the Supreme Court agreement? The Supreme Court decision on child porn, another one. Like, what are you getting <laughs> That's at? That's the most bizarre, That's I the, think, of this whole thing. And that is the crux of the lawsuit. So there's no lawsuit related to the child campaign. That was just Balenciaga saying, yo, that's our bet. And you have this separate campaign, uh, which they, there's a whole bunch of stuff on a desk, and like that includes that. So they're suing this production company, which had a printout of uh, apparently this, this 2008 decision called the United States v. Williams, uh, which ruled on the constitutionality uh, on a law prohibiting child porn. 
Uh, a rep for the production company, North Six, you mentioned them, said they had no creative control over the content of the ad, that this was all Balenciaga. Then you have the photographer who was like, I had no involvement in that campaign related to the kid. Uh, he was given no creative control over the shoot. Uh, he just got to deal with lighting and framing and that was it. So he's like, yo, that's the brand. So you have all this finger pointing going on here. And then you have uh, a parent. One of the parents of one of the children is also defending this to add more to the mix here, Jill. Okay, so one parent spoke with the Daily Mail, wanting to remain anonymous, and said, quote, no parent would actively encourage the child to take part in something which was pornographic. And I think the publicity surrounding what happened has been blown out of all proportion. And they actually said the experience was an enjoyable day. <laughs> there you go. You have it here first, folks. <laughs> the parent of the kid holding the teddy bear with the S&M attire, Thought it was an enjoyable day and doesn't understand what the big deal is. And I mean, maybe you could chalk up part of this to um, European sensibility, to American sensibility, perhaps, Jill. Maybe. Uh, I you know? Mean, you know, you make actually a good point, at least on that first on, on that the first ad, right. not the one with the Supreme Court decision. <laughs> but you do. I mean, I, I think a lot of Europeans do think that Americans are very, very prude. Um, it, it goes back to our Puritan it's, origins. Yes. Right. And and so add to the mix here. Um, so obviously Balenciaga is like our bad. And but then you have they they have a bunch of celebrity spokespeople, including because you can't be more than one thing removed from the Kardashian family, Kim <laughs> Kardashian. Like there is no story. Every podcast we could be like, you're literally one person removed from Kanye or Kim or whatever. And by the way, we should note. By the way, we're not even going to get to it. But TMZ says that they've come to an agreement. By the way, Kanye is going to pay her two hundred grand a month in child support. Because, I don't know, I can't get away from their news alerts. But regardless, back to Balenciaga here, Kim Kardashian uh, had to put out a statement. And she did it several days later. So now people are yelling at her, being like, Kim, you have four kids. Like, why weren't you on this earlier? And she said that she was struggling with her statement. But she is currently reevaluating her relationship with the brand, basing it off their willingness to accept responsibility and accountability. But that is something that should have never happened to begin with. So uh, add to it, uh, a, you know, if you're playing bingo here on a controversy, a Kardashian bingo slot there. Moshe, she is connected to so many brands and, and she's, I guess, the face of so many brands or just at least does promotions for them. She was e even connected to an Ethereum campaign brand or something. Which one was it that it was, she just It was a crypto a controversy, dollars. Ethereum Max, that she was promoting. And she had to pay like a million dollar, you know, a million dollars back plus a, a fine to the government on that. You know, some people are saying like, you're a billionaire, Kim. You don't need Balenciaga. She clearly has an affinity for the brand. And, and between her and her sisters, they're probably linked to dozens of brands out there. It'll be interesting to see what fallout there is, uh, especially for, among the people. I mean, Balenciaga is not Walmart. So I don't know how much American consumers can have an impact on this, but you know, what it means for other brands that carry uh, their products, etc. It'll be interesting as uh, what the fallout is here. And we'll be watching that lawsuit that Balenciaga filed against the production company. From CNN, rail strike threat recedes as Congress prepares to impose unpopular contract on unions. President Biden and Democratic leaders in Congress agreed late Monday to support legislation that would block a walkout by more than 100,000 union members set for the end of next week. The move relieved business groups, which had been growing increasingly concerned about the threat posed by 30 percent of the nation's freight movements grinding to a halt. More than 400 business groups had joined to plead with congressional leaders for quick action 
That strike was currently set for December 9th. I, I believe they're supposed to vote on this today. Yeah, Joe, th- this move is a serious setback for the unions who say they needed the right to strike in order to get the contract that they want. Biden, who's been a huge union advocate for years, says he's sympathetic to the union's demand, but he said a rail strike would cause just way too much economic damage. So he had to get involved here. Uh, you know, Jill, we've discussed this, I think, on a podcast last week where we talked about how in their contracts, these rail workers actually don't even have a right to a paid day off annually. And that was among the things that they're like, yo, we would like to have a couple paid days off a year. But in this case, Biden, Democrats, et cetera, just like, no, we're not letting you do this before Christmas. And so it'll be interesting to see uh, how how that plays out and how they try to assuage the unions uh, going into the you know next campaign cycle. Okay, this from Axios. The two top Republicans in Congress on Monday condemned Nick Fuentes days after former President Donald Trump hosted the white supremacist at a dinner with Kanye West at Mar-a-Lago. Uh, filed it under sentences I never, ever thought I'd say in my entire life. Right, right, right. <laughs> uh, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell and House Republican Leader Kevin McCarthy were each asked about former President Trump's dinner with Kanye and Fuentes, and they both condemned Fuentes but differed on how to criticize the former president. So first, we want to play Mitch McConnell. First, let me just say that there is no room in the Republican Party for anti-Semitism or white supremacy. And anyone meeting with people advocating that point of view, in my judgment, are highly unlikely to ever be elected president of the United States. Okay, that is McConnell, who does not like to pick fights with Trump, but there is certainly no love lost there. And now let's play Kevin McCarthy, who is set to become the next Speaker of the House. I don't think anybody should be spending any time with Nick Fuentes. He has no place in this Republican Party. I think President Trump uh, came out four times and uh, condemned him and didn't know who he was. Well, he just said he didn't know who he was. He didn't condemn him or his ideology. Well, I condemn his ideology. It has no place in society. What is your opinion? And what about the former president? The president didn't know who he was. So, Jill, a couple really interesting statements there. That last one, Kevin McCarthy, who uh, is engaged in his own fight to become the next Speaker of the House. He has a uh, extreme right wing of uh, his House Republicans. Many of them are very close to former President Trump. So you see him dancing around there. Uh, the reporter's like, no, he President Trump did not uh, condemn him four times. He's like, oh, well, then I condemn him. And they're like, well, what about Trump? And he's like, well, I condemn him. You know, he's trying to dance here, um, especially as he goes into early January and wants to get the necessary votes to be the next speaker. This has been his dream, uh, and he hasn't been able to do it yet. At the same time, you have Mitch McConnell, who uh, we know there's no love lost between those two. They haven't spoken for two years now. Trump, in any given week, will rail against him and his wife, Elaine Chao, who he calls a derogatory name on Truth Social. She was his transportation secretary, resigned after January 6th. So he's constantly going after them. Uh, And this is like literally the least favorite thing that Republicans have to do in Washington, which is respond to things Trump did. And they're like, when he finally, one relief they had, even though they weren't controlling the White House anymore, after he lost, was like, at least we won't have to respond to things he's saying and doing. And guess what? He's running for president again, and they're having to respond again. And you you, you saw it over the weekend, and you're seeing it with these guys, and they're just like, I'm going to go as far as I can without creating a, a civil war, uh, an active civil war within the party. 
By the way, Kanye walked out of an interview on Monday. He was on a live-streamed episode of Tim Pool's TimCast. Wait, with- people are still interviewing him, Jill? Like, this, this is, is the still- problem. Yeah. Yes, this okay. is the problem. It, it, yeah. it, he's getting any platform here. Um, yeah. He was, of course, with his BFF AEAE, Nick Fuentes, um, and white supremacist Milo Yiannopoulos, who is West's campaign advisor for his 2024 presidential bid. Again, like the most insane thing Go I've ever said in my life. Go back to yourself in 2009 and be like, in 2022, the president has just been Donald Trump. And Kanye is, and they're having a fight about who's running for president next. This is the thing. Um, Once again, though, Kanye West spewing just this anti-Semitic conspiracy theory that Jews control the world, uh, this time pointing to Jared Kushner, Trump's son-in-law, who is Jewish, and then Rahm Emanuel, who is President Obama's chief of staff, who is Jewish. Yeah. Uh, it's it's laughable if it wasn't so dangerous. Um, so the host pushed back a little bit, like not even a lot, a teeny tiny bit. Mm-hmm. And Kanye went nuts and walked out. Um, and I am personally torn. Do we even mention this stuff? Do we report on it and just give him and this awful motley crew any sort of attention? Or do we just ignore him and hope, he, hope that he's going to go away? But he's not going away so I don't know. I, yeah. I don't know what to do, but. Well, I mean, I I think like, you know, for like, I will say that there's been a lot of iterations of the story that we have ignored, Joe, and the more significant ones, you know, we will, you know, report on. These things have an impact. And so I think that's the struggle also when you hear the the reaction from the politicians to the stuff being like, I don't want to mention this guy's name. I don't want to give, you know, if I, if, if us mentioning his name attracts one more person to these like terrible people, then that's a bad thing. So I think that's something that, you know, uh, people struggle with, that media struggle with. And I often will get this question on Instagram from people being like, why is there not much coverage of X story or Y story? And I'm like, sometimes the media just doesn't want to give attention to these people. This is sort of the the problem with the dinner last week, which is of anyone who has dinner, has a literal seat at the table with a former president, um, is going to get attention and is going to empower people from that side being like, look, serious people are, are having dinner with this. Uh, I don't think it was an accident. Look, if former President Obama had dinner with this guy, it would be huge news. And you can't just not cover it because it's like, oh, Trump, he's great. You know, well, that's just what he does. I mean, I'll bring up a more specific example. People are like, well, Obama, you know, met with Louis Farrakhan. I'm like, yes, in 2004 or 2005 before he was president. And he had his preacher, Jeremiah Wright, who spewed a lot of, you know, uh, kind of extreme ideology. This is stuff that Obama had to deal with before he was president. Uh, he, you know, is now a former president. He didn't meet with those people at the White House. He condemned them. Um, and in this case, you don't have Trump condemning these people. And he's already been president. And he's running for president again. So, you know, slightly comparable, not totally comparable. But I think that's the significant thing is even when you, you know, uh, screw up here in the case of uh, the former president, there's no admission uh, of an issue and no condemnation. And I think that's the concern that, that, some, that some people have and the, and the kind of unique, what makes this uniquely concerning. All right, from The Hill newspaper, the mother of one of the victims in the Uvalde, Texas elementary school massacre has filed a federal lawsuit against the city's law enforcement agencies, the local school district, and the gun manufacturer. In the lawsuit filed Monday, Eliana Torres, whose 10-year-old daughter Sandra was killed in the shooting, accuses the city, school, and multiple police departments of a complete failure to follow procedures set out by active shooter drills 
and violating the constitutional rights of the victims by waiting an hour to go in and stop the shooting. The lawsuit also alleges that gun manufacturer Daniel Defense violated the Federal Trade Commission Act by negligently using militaristic imagery to lure young consumers to purchase their products. That company, Daniel Defense, also advertises its products to target audiences through various social media platforms and the popular combat video game Call of Duty, according to the lawsuit. Yeah, so not surprising that the lawsuit is coming against the school and the police force and the security agencies. I mean, there's a lot of questions and a lot of negligence there, Jill. But it is interesting, this new trend of finding a way to get at the gun manufacturers. You know, we should begin by saying that the gun industry is actually immune to lawsuits. Congress passed a law back in 2005 called the Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act. It effectively shields gun companies and dealers from being held liable when crimes are committed with their products, guns, that they lawfully produce or sell. So they're effectively protected here officially. But lawyers have found an end around here. In February, families of the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting were awarded $73 million after they sued Remington Arms, that was the gun manufacturer uh, of the gun that was used in that school shooting. The lawsuit targeted the marketing practices of the gun manufacturer. So that's the workaround here uh, to the immunity law, the, the feeling that they can go after their marketing practices as opposed to the gun itself. Interestingly, in September, I think we mentioned this on the podcast as well, the victims of the 4th of July parade shooting in Highland Park also sued the manufacturer of the gun used in that shooting, that's Smith & Wesson, for its marketing practices. And so we're now seeing this for a third time uh, here, uh, that you can go after the gun manufacturer if you specifically go after their marketing practices. This from CBS News, New York City Mayor Eric Adams announced a new initiative that would give the city more leeway to involuntarily hospitalize severely mentally ill people on the city's subways and streets even if they do not appear to pose an immediate danger to others. Adams said Tuesday that he is, quote, determined to do more to assist people with mental illness, especially those with untreated psychotic disorders posing a risk of harm to themselves, even if they are not an imminent threat to the public. He added, it is not acceptable for us to see someone who clearly needs help and walk past. Adams, a former police officer, said the city will be training emergency medical services staff and other medical personnel to ensure compassionate care. He said the policy that he is proposing explicitly states when it's appropriate to use this process to hospitalize a person suffering from mental illness, even if they don't want to go. Yeah, Jill, we've been talking about crime in the city. Uh, it obviously played a huge role uh, in the election. I mean, one of the only states that saw a red wave was New York, partially due to the crime wave. And so this is relevant here. So right now in New York, emergency personnel have the ability to involuntarily hospitalize those suffering from mental illness if they see them on the street in limited circumstances. Patients, though, are often released after a few days when the immediate danger appears to be over. But with the growing concerns about crime, uh, several disturbing attacks on the subway system, that has really put the mental health crisis in the city in the spotlight, the city's public advocate actually released a report earlier this month saying the city has not undertaken enough efforts to help those suffering from mental illness. The big issue among the big issues here, and you hear this from civil libertarians and others, is that the city has a shortage of psychiatric hospital beds. And so how will they hold all these people with the lack of beds? That's among the challenges here. I also think that Adams makes an interesting point about the compassion to these people who who do need help, is it kind to be leaving them on the street? Right. I mean, they, and this is a huge debate, you know, for those of you who've been writing in from Los Angeles 
of the people who are just living in these huge tent communities over there. Well, it's their choice to live like that. Well, it has an impact on the on on the rest of us as well. And so, um, you know, who who's managing this? Who's making those decisions? Define compassionate, and clearly, you can define it from in multiple ways. It appears. From the AP, gaslighting is Merriam-Webster's word of the year for 2022. Lookups for the word on merriam-webster.com increased 1,740% in 2022 over the year before. But something else happened. There wasn't a single event that drove significant spikes in curiosity as it usually goes with the chosen word of the year. So by the way, Merriam-Webster's top definition for gaslighting, in case you're wondering, is the psychological manipulation of a person, usually over an extended period of time, that causes the victim to question the validity of their own thoughts, perception of reality, or memories, and typically leads to confusion, loss of confidence, and self-esteem, uncertainty of one's emotional or mental stability, and dependency on the perpetrator. Gaslighting is a heinous tool frequently used by abusers in relationships and by politicians and other newsmakers. It can happen between romantic partners within a broader family unit and among friends. Um, There is also medical gaslighting when a healthcare professional dismisses a patient's symptoms or illness as all in your head. All right. So gaslight, no specific event, but just huge in 2022. Fascinating, Jill. Um, You know, what's interesting is I was actually just looking at the origins of this term recently because Angela Lansbury, uh, the famous actress, you know, Jessica from Murder, She Wrote, her first movie, Jill, was a movie called Gaslight. Uh, that really reinforced the term 80 years ago. Uh, she actually earned her first Oscar nominations performing in Gaslight. So here's a random fact for you folks. So that's Gaslight. Um, but we promised that we would tell you who the runners-up are for the word of the year. Um, here are the rest of them. Oligarch, of course, driven by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Omicron, the uh, COVID variant, the 15th letter of the Greek alphabet. Codify, we used in this podcast earlier. Yes, we did. I was um, going to call it out. <laughs> Um, Queen Consort, which is uh, what Camilla is now known as, uh, King Charles's wife. It, like now we have some really basic words: raid, as in the search of Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago home. Why was why was anyone? Th- that's the only one I'm confused. Why was anyone looking up that one? The word raid. Yeah, maybe I think there was a political debate as to whether the search warrant was a raid. He called it a raid, but like I think there was a whole debate as to like does the FBI conduct a raid or was that just kind of a term that Trump used to you know make him sound more got kind it because a raid here? is like I actually looked up a few of these. I have to admit. Yeah. Um, raid to me seems like a pretty basic word. You want to take us through the uh, the rest of these here, Joe? Sure. Uh, <laughs> are you and, gaslighting me, Moshe? Uh, I'm not. I'm not gaslighting you. But what I will say, Jill, is this next word. You, we definitely had to re-record the podcast a couple times because you were having trouble with it earlier this year. <laughs> I, by the way, I'm, I'm. I can't even believe you're making me say it because okay, I don't know how. Fine, I'll say it. Sentient. I'll say it. Sentient. Sentient oh, was. Yeah, I got it right. Uh, yes. Okay. This was tied to something very specific. If you remember, Google fired that engineer who claimed that an unreleased AI system. Had become sentient, sentient. As in, like a robot was like a human, like could react to things, could feel things. That's the idea. So we humans are sentient. Computers, based on what we know, are not sentient, but that's our big concern. Allegedly. Allegedly. Uh, Cancel culture, as the AP says. Enough said. Um, LGBTQIA for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, or questioning, intersex, and asexual, aromantic, or agender. And 
Lomi or Lomi, I think this is, which many Wordle users tried back in August, uh, though the right word that day was clown. Were you ever into the Wordle thing? No. Are you, were really? you? Like I tried it a couple times, like peak Wordle, you know, because it's a, you know, it was a thing. It was a cultural thing. I know there are some hardcores that are still doing it daily, but uh, you know, I know there's been some complaints since the New York Times uh, purchased Wordle and took it over that it's not what it once was. Nope. And if you're not into it, when people post their Wordles, you're just like, what is this? It's just <laughs> why, a why blob of blocks. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't get it. Yeah. So apparently a Wordle word made 2022. By the way, I am surprised that cancel culture took until 2022 to become a Merriam-Webster word of the um, year. I feel like it's been around for a couple of years now, but I guess they had to get to get around to it. Yeah. It, it, look, they said they're like, it's based solely on on searches, on Google searches. Interesting. It's not, there's no editorializing of any of this. All right, we're going to leave it there. Um, if there's any words you'd like to know more about, please let us know. <laughs> you can email us, podcast at mo.news, uh, or words that you'd like us to use as part of our podcast. Uh, though a few of these uh, are almost used daily. We want to thank all of you for listening uh, to this Wednesday podcast. We hope it helps you get through hump day, get through the week. Guys, uh, after 12 o'clock today, you're closer to the weekend than last weekend. So congratulations. Please Look follow- at you uh, trying to cheer up the crowd, Moshe. I like it. I am. I'm trying to be an optimist. I'm trying to be an optimist as we enter these gloomy days in the Northern Hemisphere, Jill, where like sunset is before five o'clock. You know what it is? Give Mosh 48 hours in in sun and warm weather and he comes back a new man. Give him a gas-powered car and drop the electric car and he's, <laughs> he's pure joy. And if you don't get the reference, listen to yesterday's podcast. If you don't already, please follow or subscribe to the show so you don't miss a single episode. You can do that right now in your app and leave us a review in the App Store. It helps us continue to grow the podcast, Joel. Okay, bye. See ya.